So chapter 21, the first half of chapter 21, Jesus feeds his sheep. And then in the second half of this chapter, Jesus commissions them to do the same. So let's look at the first half of chapter 21 this morning. So um, chapter 21, verse 1 says this. says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, will you go, um, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad or among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, that he was not going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, 
What is that to you? This is a disciple who is being witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray together. Father, we're in awe of all the things that Jesus has done that we have seen written and knowing that there's many other things that he has done that we have no idea about that were not written in this book. So I pray this morning that, um, that we would see our purpose in this grander story, that we have a calling, that you have a purpose for us. So help us to see that, help us to believe that and trust you. Help us to live it out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I find it interesting that John would end his gospel, these 21 chapters, this way. I mean, let's, let's think about the last few chapters for a moment. Chapters 13 through 17 describe the night prior to Jesus' death. Remember, it was many chapters, and it was just one night. And these chapters, known as the Farewell Discourse, Jesus focuses his final instructions to the disciples before he's arrested and crucified. Then in chapters 18 and 19, we see the account of his arrest, the betrayal, the crucifixion. Then chapter 20 proclaims this spectacular truth of the resurrection. What a perfect way that could have been to end this incredible story. I mean... Chapter 20 even ends with John giving his purpose statement for the entire book. You would think that would be at the very beginning or maybe at the very end. Uh, That purpose statement of, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What What a perfect ending. So why chapter 21? Why does John leave us with this account of the disciples just going out fishing? Why not end with this climax? Why does the book end with just normal mundane life of some guys fishing? I think John is painting a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. This is what John wants to leave us with. I think this is the visual illustration of Jesus commissioning in chapter 20. In chapter 20 when he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so now in 21, we get to see this. Uh, We get to see Jesus sending out his followers. I think John is reminding us that the resurrection is not the end of the story. And John leaves us with this reminder that there's still work to be done. And the work that is typically done uh, while we're going about our mundane, ordinary lives, uh, that's, that's how the work of ministry is usually played out. It's just the places where you work, where you live, where you play. Places like fishing, places like an office or a school, that's where we so often see life being changed, around the table. So let's walk through this chapter together and see, how, see what God is leaving us to do. He's putting us on mission Our passage today takes place at some point, maybe a few days after Thomas confesses Christ. You remember that conversation where many had called Thomas, doubting Thomas? At some point, Peter decides he's going fishing, and 
some of the disciples would like to go with them. We know that from the Gospels that many of these disciples were expert. They, they were professional fishermen. They, they weren't amateurs. Prior to Jesus calling them to be his disciples, many of them made their living as fishermen. In verse 2, we see John names five disciples by name, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, which we know to be James and the author John. Then for whatever reason, John says, and two others of his disciples were together. He, he doesn't, we don't know who those two are, um, but there's seven disciples go out at night to fish. Now, in this culture, uh, this is when you go out fishing. This would be the preferred time. This way you catch fish overnight. You bring them in in the morning. They're sold fresh there to, to people getting up to start their day. So the seven of them hopped into a boat, headed out on the Sea of Tiberias. This is what the Romans called the Sea of Galilee. They go out on the sea to catch some fish, but they have no luck. You been there? Any of you? Yeah, yeah that's right. They fish all night long and do not catch one single fish. You could imagine the frustration. Remember, these guys are professionals. They're not hackers like we are. Uh, and, and this is where the tension comes in in the story. I, I think John is using this account to teach us some basic principles to follow. So let's look down at verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answer him, no. Why is that always the question you first get when you catch nothing? Right? When you, when you slay them, there's never anybody on shore that's going to ask you, like, hey, how'd it go today? But here, Jesus sees them, yeah, hey, how'd it go? Not so well. Then he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Jesus confidently says that they will catch some. You catch 153 fish over a few seconds, and someone asks you how, do you, how you did, and, and, and you reply, yeah, we caught some. This is, like, this is like a humble thing. But when you're the Lord of heavens and earth, 153 fish would be, I guess, some especially when he's feeding 5,000. But don't miss the principle that, that John is showing us here. Here we have seven men. Many of them were professional fishermen. But until the Lord prepared the nets, they weren't going to catch anything. I don't care how skilled you are. If the Lord doesn't go before you, then you will not be successful. John paints a beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That we just trust him. You throw the net out. We've been fishing all. I'm sure they had fished on the right side of the boat. It wasn't like they were clueless to the right side of the boat. But they just trust. I'm going to throw the net over. Trust Jesus. Jesus had told them back in chapter 15 that apart from him, they could do what? Nothing. And now they're seeing those words come true. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. These were professional fishermen. This was something they excelled at. But their labor was in vain because the Lord had not yet built the house. It's interesting, when you look at the Gospels, 
these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples, they, they never catch fish without Jesus. It's kind of, kind of interesting when you're looking at that. Do you remember how when Jesus first called uh, these disciples, it was, it was incredible, and each had their own calling, but specifically in Matthew chapter 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. This sounds familiar, right? For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Here's Jesus. He's gathering his disciples early in his public ministry. We see two sets of brothers, which makes me wonder if Andrew is one of these unnamed disciples in John 21. Uh, If so, then we have both sets of brothers here in Matthew 4, John 21, at the first commission, last commission. And Jesus is looking at these fishermen, and he tells them to follow him, and he will make them fishers of men. Then they immediately, they leave their jobs and their family and followed him. They left everything, everything that was comfortable, just so they could be a part of his mission. And now this gospel ends with them fishing yet again, and their time on the boat is not going so well. And maybe they're just a bit rusty, but, you know, it, it's, it, Jesus is trying to teach them something extremely important. Maybe this is a reminder that we will never have true success without the help of Jesus. Or or maybe it's a lesson that there are times where you may be extremely faithful, but yet you see no fruit. You know, I think of Cody and Savannah. There's going to be times where if you're going to some unreached place, you can be extremely faithful, but it may, you know, you read some of these missionary accounts, it, it takes years where you see the first believer. And so maybe Jesus is teaching them a lesson. I think the net full of fish is a picture of God's provision, that he is faithful to provide. And when he does, we need to acknowledge him for such. We need to give him praise. We need to be thankful people, which is what we see John doing in verse 7. John acknowledges him in verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loves, um, later we'll see this as John, or at least I'm going to suppose, I'm going to, Suggest this is John. Um, Therefore, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. That disciple whom Jesus loved um, realizes that it's Jesus. He says, it's the Lord. And he tells Peter and Peter does his best Michael Phelps and swims 100 yards to shore. Verse 8, the rest of the disciples come to shore, dragging the net full of fish. In verse 9, when they had got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now remember, John is extremely gifted at using details for a purpose. Why does he mention this charcoal fire? Why not just say fire? 
Can you remember another time when John mentioned a charcoal fire? Charcoal is only mentioned twice in the entire New Testament. And both times it's found in John's gospel. And both times it deals with Peter. Let's look back to chapter 18. In chapter 18, Jesus just been arrested. John and Peter follow him. Peter is outside in the courtyard while Jesus is being interrogated. And in verse 17, it says, the, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Notice there's a charcoal fire when Peter denies Jesus. And now in chapter 21, there is a charcoal fire when Jesus is about to be restored and commissioned to feed a sheep. I think John is doing something here. here. I think John is trying to help us understand that Jesus is showing us that no matter what you've done, even when you've publicly denied Christ, and remember Luke's gospel says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter when he denied him that third time. That even after all that, Jesus can restore you. So they're at this charcoal fire, and Jesus says, bring me some fish that you have just caught. I mean, I guess technically they did catch the fish. It was their boat. It was their nets. They had to listen to the man saying, throw the nets to the right side. They had to draw in the net. But we all know that they would have never caught these fish without Jesus. But I love how Jesus says, the fish that you have just caught. Jesus is sovereign. He, he's all-powerful. He can make fish just show up at the right time at the right place. This makes, me, this makes me think about the time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus makes the coin show up in the fish's mouth that Peter catches. Um, and, you know, he tells him, go down and you'll find a fish. And it's just amazing how... Jesus is in control of all things. He is sovereign. I mean, who can do this? And then he gives you the credit for catching the fish. This is absolutely amazing. Uh, this is a good reminder for us to stay humble. That, that anytime you think you have done something great, you know, look, look at all look what I've caught. It's a reminder that God has gone before you. That if he hadn't gone before you, you wouldn't have the success that you have. Here John shows us yet another example of how God's divine sovereignty is coupled with man's responsibility. Jesus is preparing them to trust his work that he will provide. In verse 11, we see Peter rejoins the crew. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Peter hauls in this large catch of fish. Seems like he does this by himself. The net was full. And then notice it wasn't just any kind of fish. It was large fish. And the number of the fish was given very precisely, 153. 153 large fish. That definitely stands out when you're reading this text. Maybe some of you have already... Like, well, that's interesting. Why do you say 153? Well, there's been a lot of speculation from brilliant men throughout church history, so let me just entertain you for a moment. 
the fourth century bishop, um, Augustine, wrote that 153 is the sum of 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6, all the way to 17. So you go ahead and take out your phone and do a calculator out. You add that up. When you get to 17, you press enter. You get 153. Okay, why? Why the number 17? Well, Augustine has some answers. He says, well, obviously the 17 is from the Ten Commandments plus the seven spirits of God in Revelation. I'm sure that's what all of you were thinking when, when you got to 17. I'm guessing Augustine's, um, his contemporaries made the same unsatisfied face that I'm seeing from you right now because he gave a second option. The second option for getting the number 17 could be from the feeding of the 5,000 where you had five loaves plus the 12 baskets equal 17. There you go. You still don't seem that satisfied. Um, Another mathematic attempt to understand this 153 is to look at it as a perfect triangular equation. Now, how many of you even know what a perfect triangular equation is? I had not, but now I do. So, 1, 5, 3. If you take 1 times 1 times 1, you get... I don't know who said it, but I'm sharp. You take 5 times 5 times 5, you get... Not as quickly... 125, thank you, okay. Then you take 3 times 3 times 3, and you get? Okay. So you add these together, and guess what you get? 153. You're blown away, right? So the triangular, the, you know, a triangle, triangle has been this, the symbol for the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So is Jesus trying to show us something about the Holy Spirit here? Others have speculated, um, um, you know, like, like Jerome, for example, he, he, he's one of Augustine's contemporaries. He, he said that the 153 fish didn't represent the 1 plus 2 plus 3 thing. He thinks that it represented each species of fish, and thus that it was a, um, a symbol of the fruitful mission of, you know, being a fishers of men. Others have speculated that the 153 represents the number of people groups during the first century, so this is a picture of Jesus catching someone from all nations. I can find holes, and I'm sure you can too, in each one of these, you know, these theories. Um, I just want to warn you, as the good Bible scholars that you are, to not look at the Bible as some type of book of codes, as if there's some hidden message in there that, you know, if you count up certain letters and it makes this hidden code that God is leaving the reader on search to find. The Bible is a book meant to be read like other books. And although some passages may seem at first difficult to grasp, the Bible is written in such a way that all things necessary to become a Christian, to live as a Christian, and grow as a Christian are absolutely clear. And so here is how many others, and I would put myself in this camp, how we understand the 153 large fish of John 21. You ready? John specifically writes 153 fish because that morning when he counted the fish, there were 153 fish. I know it's not as cool as the one times one times one thing. 
But I think the precision and the detail make it clear that this is a firsthand account. This is someone who's, who's there in the story. This was his life. He was living it out. He saw what took place that morning. And then he names these other men who were there that you could go and interview them to say, hey, did that really happen? I think that's what's going on. John's leaving us with a detailed account, firsthand eyewitness account of what's going on. So these 153 large fish were caught, and Jesus says to them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love how when Jesus has something important to tell his disciples, he, he, he does so around the table. You think about the, think about the, um, the Lord's Supper around the table. Like, like Jesus often sat down and would eat with them. He, this is how he made disciples. He spent time with them. He does it around the table. He does it from walking from one town to another. He shares life with people. He did not create leadership conferences or big events to disciple his followers. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but they cannot take the place of simply doing life together. See, Jesus, he could have showed up today in our century as a Messiah when you had podcasts and all this technology to get the word out. But he showed up then. It was a perfect time for him to show up. And he's just sharing life with these men. Going from town to town, one meal to another. What about you? How do you make disciples? I'm curious, are, are you quick to rush off after the benediction? Are you in a community group? Do you ever have church family over to your house for dinner or dessert just to have some time with them? Um, encourage them other ways throughout the week, maybe texting, a phone call? This is the model that Jesus leaves us with. Just sharing life with one another. He doesn't make it overcomplicated. It's not expensive. It's just, hey, let's, let's share life together. But before he wants us to spend time with others, he wants us to spend time with him. You see, Jesus is calling you to come to breakfast, to spend time with him. And I, I'll just be honest, I don't feel like I've done a great job at this. Uh, since, since like probably like 2020, I feel like I've let different excuses just keep me from coming to the breakfast table and being with Jesus. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've been the same way. Maybe it's 2020. Maybe it's longer than that and sooner than that. But just feel like my mornings, I've not been winning the mornings with Christ. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that mornings with Jesus is, is the way that, you know, that he commands us to become holy. See, some of you, especially those of you in the medical field, like, your schedules are so crazy. Like, your mornings start at 3 p.m. Because you've worked all night. You've worked some crazy 12-hour shift. And the, the point is, is that before we can ever be effective out among the world, we need to first spend time with Jesus. So whenever you do that, 
We need to do that. We need to take that time. John shows us that our nets will return empty if we think we can accomplish tasks without the help of Jesus. Now remember, it was just a few days ago in this passage, by a charcoal fire, Peter publicly denied Jesus three times. And now Peter's having breakfast with Jesus by a charcoal fire. It's not hard to imagine there could still be some awkwardness in that group, you know, maybe among Peter and the disciples or Peter and Jesus. But I love how Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. You could have easily seen Jesus, like when someone wrongs you, is it easy for your flesh to just kind of, okay, I'm done with you. You know, I'm going to focus on these people. Jesus could have easily just, so at this point there's 11 Peter's now gone. I'm just going to focus on these 10 guys, Peter. But he doesn't do that. We see Jesus publicly restoring Peter in front of the disciples. Just as Peter was asked three times if he knew Jesus, and all three times Peter denied knowing Jesus, now we see Jesus asking Peter three questions. So let's look down at verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice he doesn't call him Peter, but he calls him Simon, son of John. This is what he called him when he first met him before he called him Peter. And I wonder if this would just kind of sting just a bit. Ah, you used to call me Peter. I'm at the rock. Now I'm Simon, son of John. Jesus asked him three times if he loved him, and all three times Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But as you can imagine, after the second time Jesus asked the question, Peter was grieved. And one of the things I can remember from um, when Olivia and I did premarital counseling, that pastor, he, he told us, he said, if you tell somebody something, the first time that's called information. You tell them twice, that's a reminder. When you go past three times, you go into the world of nagging. So the marriage, you don't, you don't want to be nagging. So you can imagine, like, Peter's like, like, man, Jesus is just nagging me right now. Like, yeah, I love you. Will you stop asking me this? Um, and and some, some people have made a big deal. There's, you know, if you look at the Greek here, there's some different words here that, that John uses for love, agape and phileo. I, don't, I don't really don't think that John is trying to highlight something here. I, I, I don't think he's making a point of this you know, divine love and brotherly love here. I, I really don't think that's what he's getting at here. In John's gospel, in his epistles, and in Revelation, he uses phileo and agape interchangeably all the time. So I just don't think that's what he's doing here. I think here, you see, after Peter's affirmed his love for Jesus, each time Jesus told him to tend or feed a sheep. I think here's the, the picture is that love always leads to action. Jesus is showing Peter that if you truly love me, then there will be action. Jesus is restoring Peter because he knows that Peter, he has better days ahead of him. And too many of us let our past sins cripple us from living on mission. And I was just, especially say sexual sins, we allow Satan to whisper in our ear to say, you can't be used by God anymore. That is a lie. 
Why does Jesus then ask him three times if he loves him? Is he just nagging him? I think it's to replace the three times that he publicly denied him. So now he's coming, he's asking him, three, giving him a chance to affirm three times. Just as he denied three times, now is, here's his chance to affirm three times. And as much as I would like to see the gospel end with the resurrection and the ascension, there is still work to be done. So John ends his gospel with Jesus restoring and commissioning his disciples for mission. Starting in verse 18, Jesus prophesies about the type of death Peter will face. It has been recorded in church history that Peter was crucified upside down. Some believe he was crucified upside down by his own choice because he didn't, he didn't want to feel like he was worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Some people think that following Jesus will make their life easier. You know, I just need to become a Christian. My life will be so much easier if I do that. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints for his disciples. I'm guessing Peter would have had a much easier life if he'd have stayed in the fishing business. I doubt many fishermen were being crucified. But I bet Peter wouldn't have changed a thing. I bet even when he's on the cross, all the pain, upside down, I bet he wouldn't have changed a thing. that he believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that he had life in his name. So even though he was getting ready to take his final breath, that he was going to experience full life, seeing Christ glorified in heaven. So Jesus tells Peter what his future is going to look like. And then he gives Peter the same command that he gave him the first day he met him. We read that back in Matthew 4. And the same command he gives to each and every single one of us, Jesus says, follow me. I love that to become a Christian, it's not hard. Jesus says, follow me. You don't have to go to Harvard to know what that means. Follow him. I follow Christ. Following him can be hard at times, but the idea of following him is not hard. And the question for us this morning is, will you live in your past sins and failures, or will you confess your sin? Will you allow Jesus to restore you and commission you to feed his sheep? Will you follow Jesus even when times are tough? And if you've never experienced trials, just hang, hang on. They'll, they're coming. It's a promise. I want to encourage you this week to stop, to slow down, to have breakfast with Jesus. See, some of us, we, we, we want to start our day just without him. We take off running. We need to slow down. We need to invite Jesus to be a part of our day. So don't start your day or try to attempt great things for God without first including Jesus. But once you've done that, then go, live on mission. Go feed a sheep. Encourage one another. Invite someone over to your house for dinner, dessert. Take them out for coffee. Love one another. Don't overcomplicate this. Don't think you have to go to some kind of conference or retreat to figure out what it looks like to change Huntington. Just go be the hands and feet of Christ. Love others.
Follow him. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the journey we've been on through this book of John. And uh, I pray that it is, this book has helped us to remain, to, to continue to believe in you, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have life in your name. So may we live out this life May our lives not be just wasted. May it not be uh, just stagnant. But even in the mundane, ordinary days, may we be doing ministry of the gospel. May we love others where they are. May we be your hands and feet. Lord, help us to feed your sheep. Give us eyes for the broken. Help us to mend those who are hurting. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.